John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 473.LK1413, certificate number 30708, the 504 sit-in. We're speaking of something that goes beyond our bodies. Our uh, priorities are not comfort. Our priorities are justice. John, if I were to ask you, uh, have you heard of the Montgomery bus boycott? Would you have a, a reasonable sense of what I was talking about? Yes. And early uh, civil rights early movement. Civil rights movement in the South. What if I said uh, the, the Stonewall uh, riots, Stonewall yes. protests? Yes. You've heard of Stonewall. Gay, gay, gay rights uh, protest, riot, quote unquote riot you in are, Greenwich uh, Village. No, you were two for two yeah. and ready for the lightning round. All right. What if I said, have you heard of the 504 sit in? 504 sit in. I'm guessing it's not about the Peugeot 504, iconic uh, French export car. Ne- next on the short list of omnibus, uh, the cars of omnibus. Yeah, uh, your, your miniseries, Cars You Don't Want to Know About. <laughs> so it's not that. The 504 sit-in. What, it's not area code okay, 504. Okay, meaning, that was uh, my next guess. Meaning, which is uh, Greater New Orleans. I Greater guess New Orleans. New Orleans would be 504. 504. No, I have no idea what the 504 sit-in is. Uh, I didn't... Either, which huh. which is a you know, I feel bad about because yeah. this is a seminal civil rights moment of coalescence and victory, analogous to Stonewall or or any of the nineteen sixties, you know, uh, civil rights marches in the South, uh, and yet I feel like it's escaped a lot of public notice today because is it about ethics and gaming journalism <laughs> no we would all know about it if it was then those, <laughs> those are some of the biggest problems we face as a country the eigj uh no this is a landmark victory for disability rights really which you'd think would not be niche do you know how many people in america are disabled no I don't even have a rough. I don't even have a rough I guess. I know, right? What no. if you had to guess a number? What the Census Bureau thinks? You're talking about a percentage, yeah. And it's a pretty wide range, so you've got some. You've got uh, some cover here. Twelve percent. That is almost exactly the Census Bureau's number: twelve point eight percent. But it gets up to as high as twenty five percent. I guess depending on maybe twenty five percent of adults, depending on how you count. Yeah, because it's tr- it's tricky. There's. There are a lot of disabilities that aren't visible. There are a lot of disabilities that there are even some that are contentious. Exactly. And so they, 
the government figures this out with a series of six questions, which include kind of sample behaviors that are, are difficult for you. Uh-huh. And, and so it's, it's determined that way. And there's some obvious stuff, mobility stuff, um, uh, sensory stuff like blindness and deafness. Uh, but two of the categories are about uh, an, an intellectual category for developmental stuff. But two of the categories are about just kind of well, emotional well-being. Like, can you do errands? Can you do self-care? You know, right. or how independent are you? So, you know, it, it covers a broad swath of intellectual and emotional mental health issues. As well. There's a chronic pain problem, right? That's not measurable and often is a thing that, that that no doctor can discover a source. Impossible to diagnose, which must be super frustrating. If, <laughs> Maddening. If, if you have <laughs> if you have like life changing, altering pain and nobody can every, every doctor just flips up that little thing on his forehead and shrugs and says, You got me. My high school best friend, his father was a doctor that dealt with chronic pain. And so from a young age I heard him, you know, express his own frustrations in uh, in treating patients that suffered from chronic pain. And it was, uh, it, it gave me an insight into it pretty young that this was like devastating and a spe- and tw- twice as devastating to not be able to not get validation for it. Well, yeah. Or, or what? Not validation, but to, to have it verified. Diagnosis like, even, or, right. or, you know, even a label would be nice. Right. I mean, I guess now they can start saying, Here's a halo of symptoms. We still can't pinpoint the cause. But emotional disability, even more difficult to assess, I imagine. Yes. Uh, and and they do, again, they do so by its effects. Nobody asks you how bad you feel. Well, was it a breakup? You know, it really is just like, can you not run this errand today? Can you not get up and brush your teeth, you know? Right. Um, and the problem, of course, the longer you live, now that people are living longer, disability and disability rights becomes an even bigger issue because, you know, in the, in the highest age bracket above 60 or, 60 or 65 years old, it's like a third of Americans uh, would report as being disabled. So it's really another way to consider ageism. Right. And, and ableism is, is in, a lo- in a large sense, or, you know, or a huge chunk of it is just an aging population. And it's something, you know, at that point you stop thinking of yourself as well, I'm the lucky one who's able and doesn't have to worry about these issues. It really is like, there's a one in three chance this is me in a few decades. I mean, aging could be described as a progression into disability, right? I mean, the, you, ulti- <laughs> the beginning of the ultimate disability. I mean, death. In, in, in every regard, right? If you, if you are. Right, because it's on every axis. <clears throat> on every axis. It's mobility, it's sensory, it's right. intellectual, uh, it's emotional. Right. I mean, hopefully, you you know, you really you're hoping for some best case scenario where you kind of hold ground on a few of those fronts right. uh, into a respectable decade. Right. You get to be 90 and then get hit by a lightning bolt before before you lose, you know, or before you, you cross over whatever that line is where you feel like now it's now the difficulties outweigh the the, um, I don't know, and the you, effortlessness. And you walk into the sea? You, you, uh, you, jump, well, you might, jump off the cliff from Midsommar? My people call it maze. Uh, <laughs> Wait, you call you call the sea maze? No, no, we uh, we we put our old people into a maze. Oh, yeah, and, and there's, there's and food exper- in the middle. Do you experiment on? <laughs> there's food in the middle, and then yeah, we you, sit and you throw put, stuff over the wall. You walls. put an episode of Murder She Wrote on in the middle of the maze, 
And I hope I hope they can find it. The maze is also full of wolverines. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, it's a really it's a Alaska, rough culture. Alaska's a tough yeah. a tough place on the. I we mean, you have ice floes. We don't have a lot of sympathy. Can't for people. you just put them on the ice floe? That's what well, that's the old old style. But you you build a maze now. The Wolverine maze is kind of a twentieth century <laughs> I didn't know, development. Does Alaska have mazes, or do you have to import them from Michigan? Oh, we build them. We build them out of uh, ice and stone. Aren't there native predators you could use? Why isn't the maze just full of bears? There are wolverines in Alaska. Oh, is that true? Yeah, wolverines are found throughout Alaska. They're yeah, I, one of the. They, they, you just don't. You don't hear about them because you don't see wolverines very often. They're good at hiding. Well, they're in that. They're in their secret Arctic labs, getting getting adamantium on their skeletons. Yeah, right. Well, and they're that's also what they're, that's they're, what they're doing up there. They're uh, they're fighting the uh, the the Cubans and Sandinistas that invade the center <laughs> the center states well, of America. Wolverines. <laughs> Why are the Cubans invading Alaska? Well, it seems like a it seems like really part of a pincer movement. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to send a, a bunch of the rafts to Florida, uh-huh. but then you, the braver Cubans, or maybe it's just the ones they want to get rid of. They, Cass- they send them to Alaska. It's like the Hitchhiker's Guide thing where they put all the useless middle management occupations on the other rafts. Okay, you guys are doing the pincer movement. You need to find the <laughs> Northwest Passage. Anyway, I mentioned the numbers just to show that this is not a niche issue. No. And the fact that it the fact that it kind of is treated that way in a lot of Western culture today really is a sign of a kind of invisibility we prefer it's an, for the disabled. It's an eighth we, of the population. Yeah, it's even by the lowest numbers, it's one in eight. And by some estimates, by some definitions, it's as high as one in four people. I mean, people who are disabled are encouraged to invisible themselves, right? You're you're well, by, not, not by me. No, but by virtue of of Lack of accessibility, additional burdens to getting going places and being accommodated. Well, this is there's two different models of disability thought, and this is a little to do with diagnosis. It's sociopolitical theory. How do we think about disability as an issue in our culture? And the 504 sit-in in in, uh, in 1977 is a is a kind of a, a coalescence, a turning point in this sea change. Uh, for many years disability was thought of as a medical issue. There was a medical model of disability. When we thought of them at all, which again, able-bodied people preferred not to do because... Yeah, it makes you worry about how how vulnerable we all feel. It's really your own insecurity. Yeah, Like when you avert your eyes from somebody on the bus, you're really thinking, yikes, I don't want to picture me with that impairment or whatever. Uh, So according to the medical model of disability... um, the disability is the problem of the disabled person. And it ends up being based on the idea that there is a stock or a standard amount of capability that the average person has. That you that you should have. Really. Right. The society needs everybody to be at a 90, and this dude's at a 30. And come on, man. Like, like w- there's some things we can do to get you up to a 50 or 60 that, you know— we can do vac- vocational training. Maybe you should wear a, a prosthesis. Even if, even if, even if you'd rather be in a chair, we'd be more comfortable if you were hobbling around on artificial legs. So a lot of accommodation is made to the culture, uh, and asking the disabled person, just can't you be normal like us? Well, it does seem that in that throughout history, there is a real close association between uh, between any kind of ailment and a sense of. Um, that, that, that there's a, a a moral or 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 virtuous aspect to it culturally. Like if you were a good person, you would be. I mean, it just it's it's rooted in the idea that God smites people with disability as punishment for 
for sin. And medievally, there would be a, a theological basis for that. You know, right. you'd probably have clerics telling you that. Although you'd think the New Testament would have warned them off a bit. Well, God we, comes to earth and all he does is uh, just spend time with disabled people. Like, I mean, we still see it, though, all the time. Anytime uh, uh, a, uh, a calamity befalls any group of people, there are all kinds of... Um, there's there's always a hot take that it's God being mad. Well, even if even if it's an unrelated catastrophe, <laughs> if a hurricane comes, you'll have 108 year old Pat Robertson on TV tomorrow telling you it was witches and lesbians. You'll be like, really in Biloxi? Well, no, they maybe the witches and lesbians were elsewhere. Well, then why did God send the hurricane to Biloxi, Pat? So that so that but it's, it's hard to understand. Right. are throughout our culture. Why right? do we still have it? Even if you asked a hundred people on the street today, hey, do you think God is punishing that? deaf person. You know, I I bet you could get 99 or 100 of them to say no without without a second thought. And yet, well, if you go to if you go to Lords and look at all the crutches lined up on the wall as people have gone in and taken the curative waters and have regained the ability to walk, there's still an idea that God can relieve you of, you know, religion can relieve you of a disability implying that it wasn't Physical. And when medical science took over from religion, really, we didn't change the model. We were like, hmm. you know, medicine's job is to, um, you know, fix Remove sin. To, to fi- <laughs> Except with a knife. Forgive me. Forgive me, Father, for I've said, how long has it been since your last checkup, my son? <laughs> well, I should have come in in April, Father. Uh, no, just the, their idea is to, is to fix you. Yeah. Um, because you're a problem with, with whatever your, your disability or, or impairment is. And I mean, I understand, you know, as a diagnostic tool, you know, some of these people do have, if you have chronic pain, like being told, hey, it's okay. The definition of personhood can include you, buddy. That doesn't really help. You no, really just like, want, please fix this. Yeah. You really do want the pain to go away. And the, the, you know, and the new, so the new model of, of, uh, of how we think about disability often is, uh, is the social model which really thinks, hey, like, we have all these people with a series of disabilities. What can we do as a culture to, to make society livable for them? They're no longer uh, facing the problem of being, having been born or made weird. The problem is that they are the way they are, and the world is being a dick about it, basically. Like, yeah, the, like we're just putting steps in front of bus stops for no reason. The, there's the there's the other aspect, which I think is super true in America even now, which is that the that the response to disability to a lot of people looks like malingering, particularly if you don't have a if it's not diagnosable. Oh, it looks yeah. it's indistinguishable from somebody that just doesn't want to work, and this is or that wants sympathy for something that isn't real. And that, more than anything else, anything else brings out the brings out the, the scolds, the scolds exactly. Who often get elected to Congress for some reason. <laughs> well, you can just see that in the COVID response. Like you know, in some ways, this is the ultimate disability crisis. Like we could have millions of people dead and hundreds of thousands on ventilators, and they're still saying, "Hey, like, are we sending too much money to the wrong unemployed people?" That's right. Like the, the first response. What is, about the ones that were already unemployed? They don't get money. Now we're giving money to people who already should. So it I, overlaps with the welfare scolds. Yeah. you know, eighty percent. Uh, even though it's harder to defend, I mean, it's really harder to say this person's disability is their fault. But I guess on some level, you're thinking that, especially if it's some of these kind of nebulous chronic pain or fatigue 
disorders that people tend to be skeptical about. Right. Um, and it's it's something about America, right? Like we believe everybody can pull themselves up. That's it, exactly it, right? Because and if the, you literally can't pull yourself up, the heroes of the disability story from mainstream America are the are the people that, despite their disability, end up being astronauts or being professional skateboarders or whatever. And again, that that's great. It's wonderful, but it also does then cast that sort of backwards aspersion on people that have a disability that aren't professional skateboarders. So the, the social model lets you think of it as a civil rights issue, which was never true before. You wouldn't think of this as a community that needed rights. Really what they need is a, a, a better prosthetic arm so they can get a better job. A lot of this was vocational. When we thought about the disabled at all from a societal or legislative point of view, it was really, it was really like, how do we get these poor people jobs? Because again, right. that's American capitalism. Right. This guy doesn't seem useful. <laughs> He's not selling pencils or, or making our uh, uh, paper flowers. Uh, like, how do we get them in factories? Right. The solution to every problem. <laughs> Although, you know, the, I mean, what is the purpose of life? And I think I think work does bring purpose to life. And I think if you were if you were disabled and excluded from the opportunity yes. to do any kind of meaningful work. Like there is an argument to be made that work is something that, you know, that gives shape and color to existence. But this was the whole of disability law or legislation for a long time. After World War One, it was like these poor boys, you know, right. look look what they gave and and how do we how do we find jobs for them? How do oh, we retrain them for jobs? People wounded in war. Yeah, like it's this start disability law starts out as disabled veterans. I see. And then it kind of gradually widens. It happened again during the WPA era, uh, you know, all these new depression era jobs for people. Um, a lot of disabled people were left out and there were actually some protests. Um, which was a new thing, like oh. a community of disabled people forming to say, "Hey, these laws suck." After World War II, you had a lot of, you know, these great kind of Rosie the Riveter style propaganda paintings of, uh, you know, but it's somebody with an obvious disability. They've lost a limb. They've got one of those um, best years of our life hooks yeah. or whatever, a mechanical grip thing. And, you know, it says something like, um, Uncle Sam needs you to give me a job. It was framed as a, as a patriotic uh -huh. duty that you would help these people. But America was very slow to pass laws to protect the disabled. I'm sure other marginalized groups will not be shocked that America was slow to pass laws. But, um, you know, JFK had a, formed a presidential panel on mental retardation, which was, in 1961, okay to say. It's a little weird that they didn't change the name until 2003 when, when George W. Bush renamed it something about intellectual disability. But, uh, but, you know, that was the first time that a presidential administration had considered the intellectually or develop, developmentally disabled. It wasn't even until 1968 that the Architectural Barriers Act said that, hey, from going forward, federal buildings have to have ramps and brails in the elevator, you know, reasonable accommodations. ADA. That, the, that's what year? 1968. And, you know, so we're looking back from our time, we know that the American with Disabilities Act is going to pass in, what, the early 90s? Yeah. I think. Um, it's a Democratic Congress, but Bush signs it. It passes overwhelmingly. Republicans who might be skeptical uh, are being led at the time in the Senate by Bob Dole. Right, who, has, who suffers has, a, a public disability. Yeah, disabled hand and yeah. is very public and open about it and th through his support behind the ADA. But it's funny to imagine that even at 1968, the height of the civil rights uh, era, we're still starting to get, hey, what if new federal buildings... Um, 
have ramps. Didn't have a maze full of Wolverines right out front. <laughs> it's awful. I mean, to, the, to this day, to get to the DMV, you've got to get through a maze of Wolverines. And if you're in a wheelchair, I mean, that actually, that might be an advantage. Honestly. Oh, sure. If they're snapping at your heels. If like, it's an armored wheelchair. Right. Like, like Professor Xavier. <laughs> but still, I mean, it was not easy to be a disabled person in America of that era. Maybe it never is. But in this case, I mean, we just assume today that somebody in a wheelchair or a blind person will be able to get on a bus, for example. Right. And that wasn't always true. Or, or we'll be able to walk into a building or would, would have a, some kind of social services agency to help them with their needs if they needed an interpreter or an attendant or something. And there was just zero of this uh, at the time you and I were born right. in America. But that all started to change in 1973. Uh, the uh, Rehabilitation Act... It was a new version of the Re- the Rehabilitation Act was what disability law tended to be called, dating back to kind of employment for veterans initiatives of the 20th century. Sure, rehabilitate, which is I mean the whole name is a problem. Habil, right? <laughs> you just need to rehabil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess. Have you ever been habilitated if you have a congenital condition? I mean, it works for it works for veterans, but. Um, you know, even the name is kind of silly, and, and it kind of implies a lot of stuff about this medical model where, like, how can the government reach down and pull you up? Uh, right. I mean, habilement is French for ability, right? Uh, yes. So... But we use the word rehabilitate to suggest that somebody has... Lost it. Yeah, has had... Yeah. Has had a, so it makes sense for veterans and, and maybe drug addicts who need rehab, but... But um, also, I guess if you think of every, unless a child is born with a visible, uh, you know, like a cleft palate or a, you know, a, a visible disability, there is that still that that Christian sense of the disability being visited upon them because of a because of a flaw, like a spiritual flaw. I guess we didn't talk about the other side of this, which is uh, isn't this a medieval religious angle on the disabled that they are some kind of special divine, they would say idiot at the time, but, you know, closer to God, yeah. you know, touched by God in some way at birth. Right. So that they have this um, developmental disorder or whatever. Uh, but they're somehow inspired. I guess. Yeah. But it, it also, but it, again, it means we don't have to treat them like normal yeah. people. Yeah, right. There's something special and other about them, whether we're, and maybe it's a little condescending to say that these are, special little flowers who are not really people. So the rehabilitation act, act it took, took what form? I mean, it's a, it's when it comes before Nixon, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's an updating of the standard, you know, here are the, uh, you hear the kind of employment things, but it, it's much broader than before. It implies there's going to be federal agencies lending services and the standard, that we aspire to is independent living for disabled people that instead of, right. instead of being taken care of by the state, the idea is they decide what's best for their condition and they form their own communities that can, you know, that can achieve those goals. And this is, this is fine until you're talking about people that, that are disabled to the degree that they can't live independently but in the process of this, we're starting to close down facilities where, or, or there's always a problem of the of of facilities to care for the disabled becoming uh, like hellscapes. 
right? Yes. And, and it's because it's, you know, this kind of thing is expensive, and that's part of the reason why Nixon vetoes the act twice. Oh, oh. Um, he doesn't like the idea of, you know, this expensive independent living standard trying to be maintained. I mean, my... Um, my sister-in-law, uh, who recently passed away, had a developmental disorder. This is my wife's sister. And there were, you know, she was lucky that when she was born, right around this time in the early 70s, there was government funding for this, as we shall see once Nixon stops vetoing this thing. Um, and today I have a niece with the same condition, and there is just no options available anymore. The, oh. the Reagan-era gutting of all these programs uh, really had an effect. Oh, so the, this this was a... There was a, a brief window around the Carter administration where where we'd figured there, there, out a... There was some funding for this. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, which was you know then one cabinet department, Health and Education having not been split off yet, was uh, placed in charge of drafting this bill. They had just uh, finished Title IX, uh, right. which was a massive civil rights expansion that guaranteed equal treatment by sex in America's colleges and universities. Um, and this is all stuff in the, you know, in kind of the uh, aftershock of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, when there was an idea that American government could do sweeping pronouncements like this that would make society better. Right. A great society, if you will. Uh, it's all, uh, yeah, and echoes of LBJ's great society. But almost unnoticed, even while Nixon is complaining about um, how this act should focus more on vocational training and less on independent living, let these people live however is right for them. Um, some unknown health education and welfare staffer has slipped in Section 504 into the Act, uh, 40 words modeled on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And it really doesn't excite any comment, but it's in a stealthy way just a groundbreaking bit of legislation. It, it, this new section reads, no otherwise qualified handicapped individual in the United States shall solely by reason of his handicap, we said handicap then instead mm -hmm. of disability, be excluded from the participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Wow. It's so pretty it's, sweeping. It's really sweeping. If you get money from the feds, you can't exclude or deny or discriminate against any disability. And this really is a, a, a kind of the unique power of the federal government, but it also it's a constrained power, right? Because they're not making this, um, they're not making discrimination illegal. They're just tying it to federal funds. I guess to avoid constitutional challenge, right? Right. right. And so it becomes, it becomes an issue where government buildings, government program, you know, government jobs, um, they all have the 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 expansive bilingual signs or whatever, right? But if you are, you know, if you're uh, a lawyer at Enron, um, and and over time it becomes tied to contracts, right? If you if you want government contracts, I mean that's the idea. The government does have a lot of sway. At first, Enron can continue to put their minority employees in the Wolverine mazes, right? Uh, which I'm sure they did, uh, right up until <laughs> right, right up, up until, until they <laughs> completely exploded or imploded. But at some point, you know, universities are going to want federal grant money, and companies are going to want federal contracts, right? And uh, so it's really an effective way of expanding rights although it does take a while. Um, Nixon eventually signs a version of the 73 Rehabilitation Act that strips out a lot of the more expansive independent living stuff, but Section 504 is still there unnoticed by all. And this is very exciting, 
for disability rights advocates who start asking, okay, well, let's see the new guidelines. What are the new regulations? And no disability of any kind, but that's not defined. Right. And it's, and there's no teeth to it right now. Right now it's just a principle. Yeah. So they're like, okay, great. What's going to change on the ground? And the department, you know, HEW keeps saying, you know, well, you know, they're sandbagging. Nixon's HEW is replaced by Gerald Ford's department. Um, his new health, uh, health secretary is a guy named F. David Matthews, who continues to meet with these people and say, well, we're going to, we need to review these. And then he, he takes some unprecedented step of sending it back to some Senate labor committee. Clearly, he does not want to start implementing the the agencies and expensive yeah. regulatory stuff that we were, would be required to give this teeth. He's just he's just hoping that he can uh, last out his tenure in this job and and pass this buck on to somebody else. He absolutely wants to run out the clock. Two days before the Carter administration took over, uh, Secretary Matthews is actually found in contempt of court. Huh. Uh, disability lawyers have been able to 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 issue, get district courts to issue orders for them to start observing the new law and start issuing regulation, and they just refuse. And he knows he's getting replaced in two days, so he's found in contempt of court, and he says, "Oh boy, what a what a shame." <laughs> the Carter administration comes in. His new health secretary is a guy named Joseph Califano Jr who uh, has spoken glowingly of the, you know, he's reassured disability advocates that he supports uh, Section 504, uh, and then he continues to stop. Oh, he, he got elected on a hope and change platform. Like so many. Uh, and then kept Guantanamo open. Like so many hope and change candidates, he disappointed leftists almost immediately. Uh, I'm sure his, his uh, concerns are largely the same as Matthew's. Uh, Where does the money come from? Yeah, he's worried about the cost. And he also cites issues of whether or not um, drug and alcohol addiction should be covered by these. Because, you know, that's going to be an issue for industry if they can't treat – if they have to treat addiction the same as they do a wheelchair. Right. Uh, Well, and this was an era – this was the beginning of an era of widespread understanding that addiction was – or widespread description of of addiction as a disease – Rather than as a moral failing, which is shockingly recent, I feel like that's even early for that. Right? Well, no, I mean, Alcoholics was- Anonymous always had this understanding that it was. I mean, this was the the this was one of the primary insights of Bill W. But getting the world to accept that nomenclature, I f- there must have been some pushback because me coming up in the eighties amid all the you know just say no stuff, you know, it really to me that emphasized the idea that. Addiction was a moral failing. These were bozos who hadn't said no. So, like, I'm not going to treat that like multiple sclerosis. Right. Well, just say no was a Reagan administration, uh, like, scold, um, scold principle. That's exactly. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad to tell kids not to experiment with drugs. I tell my kids not to experiment oh, with drugs. Oh, well, that, you know, I, it's, I'm, it's I'm texting pro- with both Dylan and Caitlin, telling them definitely experiment with drugs. Well, but, but just text Uncle John while, uh, you know, if it gets weird. If they have to choose between, you know, the cross stitch I put above their bed that says, <laughs> that says weed is the devil's uh, herb. Uh but it's just it, it kind of reinforced that message that right. that everybody who's an addict is is you know culpable yeah, and, sure. and, and broken. We still have, we still have this problem. Yeah, this is. I'm sure I'm not the only one who who got that subconscious message. Um, so on April fourth, nineteen seventy seven, a bunch of 
disability rights advocates have a meeting with Joseph Califano. They show up at his office at 1.30 and... Early days of the Carter administration. They're like... Yeah, this is the first months of their... They got a a liberal administration and a liberal Congress and they're headed in. Yeah, Watergate has... uh, has allowed even Jimmy Carter to be president. <laughs> it's like back when SNL let contest winners host the show. <laughs> like Watergate had so destroyed the Republican Party that Jimmy Carter could come out of nowhere and be president. Uh, and yeah, in these very early months, they they these uh, this disability rights group it demands that Califano sign or you know uh, sign this regulation. He says he will not because, you know, I'm sympathetic, but, and they immediately march out and organize a march between the Capitol and the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. A spontaneous march. Yes. And, and TV cameras catch them leaving his office. Now, I think they know he's going to say no. They've sure, got this sure, planned. Sure. Sure. Uh, and at the same time, you know they have a plan because they've got it ready to go in nine other cities. You know, every, every large U.S. city, Denver, Detroit, San Francisco, Seattle. So it's a walkout. Yeah, and they made sure TV cameras caught them saying, "Well, we're uh, we're now protesting if you're not going to sign it." I mean, I understand the the irony of the term walkout. It's a it's a walkout and a rollout right. because many of these people are in wheelchairs. And in fact, this is something. I mean, this is jumping ahead much later. But when the American with Disabilities Act finally passed in the '90s, one of the reasons why it was so easy to get congressional support is because the Capitol was not super. Uh, disability friendly. You've seen the steps. Yeah. The famous steps. Yeah. And so uh, you can come around from behind. <laughs> but on multiple occasions, uh, dozens or hundreds of disability rights protesters would be doing what they called the Capitol crawl, which was pulling themselves up the steps. Oh, wow. So as congressmen and women are going to work, That's they're, quite they're an being image. forced to confront the difficulty of accessibility in federal buildings. Uh, and uh, And so, yeah, a lot of these people are in wheelchairs. They walk and roll out of Califano's office. And uh, in nine cities where the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare has a federal office, um, protesters are there, including in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Um, San Francisco is a center of the disability community at the time. You'd think because of all the hills, it would not be the greatest place to live uh, if you had a range of disabilities. No. But in fact, you know, because it's kind of a progressive city, you know, San Francisco did curb cuts before a lot of cities did, you know, to allow crosswalk access. Those are the little crosswalk mm-hmm. ramps. They did, um, you know, they did wider sidewalks. Uh, there was a lot of social services with the disabled in mind. It was, it was a, it was a really strong disability rights community. San Francisco has always been at the forefront of a lot of uh, application of progressive politics. And so San Francisco was one of the big nexuses of this protest. And on that day, 120 people walk into the federal building where the Department of Health offices are. Uh, they're let in by security guards because that's, that's, there's TV cameras there, basically. And, uh-huh. and, and these guys are in wheelchairs and, and white canes, you know. Uh-huh. So there's, there's not a lot of options. Uh, the protests are being led by a woman named Judy Hoyman. The, the three leaders of the of this protest are, are women, and one is named Judy Hoyman. As a child, uh, Hoyman had contracted polio, so she had lost some of the use of her limbs. She was a, a wheelchair user from a very young age. And when she tried to enter grade school, the local school said she couldn't attend because she was a fire hazard. Huh. This is kind of the ultimate in the medical model of disability, right? where the, where the disabled person is thought of as a 
right, a blockade. Yeah, <laughs> literally an obstacle to children fleeing a fire. Like, and so her parents had to. She had to have a parent come with her to school every day. I think to be her, her uh, to sit with her. Yeah, throughout her, her emergency wheelchair attendant. Oh my goodness! In the case of a, a, an emergency evacuation, you remember this scene from uh, from The Office where they're the television show, the office where they are evacuating during a fire drill and, uh, and the woman who works there in a wheelchair, like she's carried down three flights of stairs, but it's a, it's only a fire drill. So they kind of leave her there on a landing <laughs> in a stairwell. Pretty brutal. Yeah, is They forget about her. Is that yeah, the gag? They forget about she her. just stays there. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, and then later when she, uh, she was given a, she got a teacher certificate and was given a job in the New York public school system. And the first day she shows up and they see she's in a wheelchair and they're like, nope, like nothing has changed. Even though she's got a degree, she's still a fire hazard. Basically she has to go to court to, uh, and in a landmark ruling, she becomes the first wheelchair rider uh, to teach in the U S in the New York public school system. Right. Those all, you know, those PS schools are all tall buildings with, uh, with old marble staircases, no elevators, no access of any kind. Right. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine how hard it might. I mean, it's there's plenty of you know the real world is not disability friendly today, but it's hard to imagine just back then when pretty much every building sure had some big granite stoop and, and no wheelchair lift. To, uh, those hadn't probably even been invented. No lift, no ramp, no nothing. Um, so Hoyman and uh, 120 other protesters enter the building, and at the end of the day, most of the other protests end nationwide. But in San Francisco and in Washington, D.C., the protesters stay. It turns out that in their knapsacks, they have brought—I mean, they didn't have room to bring much. Some brought some food. Mostly it's just a toothbrush and their necessary medications. Uh, some of them— They plan to camp out. They plan a sit-in. This is the, They're going to use the language and the, you know, the, the tactics of the civil rights movement— for this new disability rights arena and sit-ins were quite effective. Huh. You, you have staked out a position sure, and your opponent looks awful if they try to do anything about it. <laughs> right. Because you're just sitting around. And in this case, you're sitting around in a bunch of, you know, with a bunch of wheelchairs and, or a lot of them didn't have their other equipment. They couldn't bring their ventilator or, right. or their attendant or whatever. Uh, so there were a lot of unique challenges to this uh, sit-in. I mean, imagine many of these people rarely left home. Right. They had they had been you know wrangled into this because of the importance of the cause, but these were not people who got out a lot. And some suddenly they they're asked to do a possibly weeks long sleepover in a federal building. I don't know if you've ever spent the night in a federal building, <laughs> but uh, it's a you know there's not a ton of amenities. You can imagine. I mean, they didn't. A lot of them had medications that needed refrigerators, right. and they there was no fridge. They ended up uh, improvising a tarp and duct tape over a air conditioner in one of the offices, huh. and made that the medication fridge. Uh, but they're in it for the long haul. They immediately form committees to start to figure out how this occupation is going to work. Are there sympathetic people within the offices that are accommodating them? It seems like this would be a, a situation where most of the people working for the feds would be allies and it was just a policy problem. Yeah. The fed, the feds left the building to oh. them. So they're now, they're now the sole occupants of the building. Um, you know, the FBI is on the scene, not sympathetic, but the city of San Francisco is on the scene and they are sympathetic. You know, these people didn't have supplies or food. So, but luckily 
you know, the city of San Francisco starts donating, sympathetic employees start donating air mattresses, the Salvation Army donates cots. Uh, they don't have food, so they're reliant on the community for that. And luckily, um, one of the uh, protesters is a guy named Brad Lomax. He's in a wheelchair with MS, and he is a member of the Black Panthers. <laughs> he, he and his attendant, Chuck Jackson, also a panther, are there. And the Black Panthers are great at feeding people. So this is what happens. Every day, uh, a bus crosses the bridge from Oakland bringing meatloaf and fried chicken and salad and rolls like a delicious home-cooked meal for the protesters. Uh, and I, really, if I was... I mean, if I... I'm kind of tempted to join the Black Panthers just for the food. It sounds delicious. Just live in Oakland and don't have enough food. Do you the think Black Panthers will. Do you think if I moved to Oakland in 1970? I don't think that they would have considered look, you a member of the community. Look, no. guys, I'm clearly a very white uh, yes. man, but that smells delicious. Yes, it does. Are those biscuits? Are the, are those biscuits fresh? Those look really. good. I don't good. think if you had lined up uh, amidst a bunch of. Ten-year-olds and and seven-year-olds. Oh yeah, because they do these massive free breakfast That's programs. Right. Yeah, for for kids going to school without food. Uh, and uh, so it's an interesting angle of these protests that it's an early example of what. And this is one reason why uh, this was this topic was chosen by a Patreon supporter named Desiree, who gave at the uh, I don't remember the name of our own levels. Uh, no, the uh, sentient orange quake, level, quaking aspen tree level, right? Where she got to choose the. Uh, the oh, oh, the, that's wonderful! This is a Patreon a episode. This is a user-suggested topic. And oh, one, good. And one reason why she cited this particular sentence because it's an early landmark example of intersectional activism. I see. You know, it was organized by by women who you know were well-versed in the language and tactics of the feminist movement. Um, it was in San Francisco, so there were LGBT members of the protesters. The Black Panthers were feeding them uh, Right, recognized the common cause. Yeah. So uh, Joyce Jackson, one of the leaders of the protest, was, a, was an African-American disabled woman, so like the ultimate in intersectionality. I don't know if she was gay or straight, but she's, you know, she's doing really well. Uh-huh. Three out of four. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a really tough... It's a tough uh, ask for 120 disabled people to have to be in an unfriendly federal building for weeks. I mean, 120 people just sort of rolls off the tongue. But when you really picture 120 people in a place with no facilities, office building, they're washing each other's hair in the restroom sink. That's bigger than uh, YMCA camp. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of people in a place with no room for them. Uh, And so they have to learn to help each other. You know, the deaf people have not brought their interpreters, for example. Um, A lot of the, the, the paraplegic and quadriplegic, uh, the people living with paraplegia and quadriplegia have not brought their attendance. Sure. So, you know, committees form like, Hey, if you, if you turn her over at night, you're blind. She she can read to you the next day. So you know people are exchanging duties and figuring out how to kind of form a self reliant community, uh, which is pretty cool. But it it takes a serious health toll. I, I've read accounts of the of the protesters. Uh, you know, many of them were just popping sleeping pills just to try to get yeah a bit of sleep because they well, did not have sleeping. Sanitation must have been incredibly difficult, right? Yes. Uh, you know, people had health toll for years. You, you know, you have somebody with multiple sclerosis. It's really hard ask to just have them sit in an office building for weeks. Um, And, but, you know, but they had the advantage, they had many advantages. You know, uh, the thing about disabled people, especially at this time, is they had been forced to be very resourceful from a world that didn't give a shit about them. Right. You know, so they were, they were used to kind of this MacGyvering of reality to make do. 
And of course, they could really take advantage of the optics of the situation. You know, of course, ideologically, they're opposed to this idea that, uh, you know, disability, disabled people are special and in in kind of a pathetic way deserve, you know, our our pity and condescension. But uh, but they could use that. Right. You know, like they knew they weren't going to get hauled off. They knew that they were an appealing um, source of sympathy on the six o'clock news. Uh, Two weeks in... uh, Weeks have gone by. Whoa. 14 of the leaders of the protest uh, and eight of their attendants decide to head to D.C. to lobby Califano one more time to say, we're not leaving. Like, what do you got? And are the D.C. activists still uh, still sitting in there as well? No, I think their protest was much shorter. So we're weeks into this and San Francisco, San Francisco is, the last is left. Yeah. And they have no way to get to D.C. So they pile into the back of a darkened U-Haul and just sleep in sympathetic churches on the way. My God! I know. Like, how do you get a bunch of people in wheelchairs to across the country? They just didn't have a lot of options. Have you ever ridden across the country in the back of a U-Haul? I have ridden across the country in the front of a U-Haul once, and it was bad enough. Yeah, I have ridden long distance in the in the darkened back of a U-Haul. Is this like saving money at the drive-in? Yeah. Like, was the rental cheaper if they pretended you were hidden under the the hutch? No, it's the it's the Henry Rollins problem. Like, you've got you've got. a bunch of music stuff you need to get from hither to thither, uh, and there are too many of you to fit in the cab. And so you're young, and you're like, I'll ride in the back. And then you you regret having made that offer. I thought the Henry Rollins problem is if somebody offers you a beer, and you have to kick their ass. No, the Henry Rollins problem is if someone wants to pay $20 for a ticket to see your show, you can only accept five, because uh, the other 15 is filthy lucre. I see. It's... it's uh Immoral. Yeah, immoral. I see. Or, or you accept the whole 20, but you only claim to have accepted five. You accept the 20, but 15 goes to Ticketmaster. Oof. Once the, so once the leaders are gone, law enforcement thinks, this is it. We can end this protest now. The FBI cuts their phones. They resort to tactics like to try to turn the protesters against each other. They call in a fake bomb scare. Oh. In, in hope that they can briefly get them out of the building and then be like, ha no tag Lock backs. Lock the door. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, it's really the FBI's playing dirty. <laughs> Come on. Don't they know not, the rules? Not of- our own Federal Bureau of Investigation. Luckily, that was the worst thing that the intelligence community ever did. Could the Did the bomb scare not work? Did, they, did, uh, did the protesters laugh it off? The protesters only became more, like now they were laser focused on their one mission. You know, n- Now that they know they've got people on the... Boots on the ground in Washington, D.C., they know their only utility is right. to stay put. Right, right, so right. So they become laser-focused on not uh, not moving a, a, an inch. And as you said, you know, local officials are likely to be very sympathetic. And so the city of San Francisco, once the FBI cuts the lines, installs new payphones uh-huh. because because they can, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so you've got kind of a jurisdictional battle sure, going on. Sure, an interagency combat. Uh, and so in, in D.C., meanwhile, uh, the leaders of the movement are staking out Califano's affluent suburban home. Uh, They're trying to confront Jimmy Carter at church. He's having to sneak out the side of his Baptist congregation because otherwise he's going to face people in wheelchairs with signs. Um, Large protests are happening at Lafayette Park across from the White House every day, the place where Bush found it so hard to buy crack, Sure, you may recall. Um, Often filled with protesters. Now it's uh, disability rights protesters. At one point, there's a hearing. Uh, The tide turns when... uh, the protesters agreed to hold a hearing in the, the plaza in front of the federal building in San Francisco, where they kind of have a face-to-face with somebody from the Department of Health who kind of gives the sympathetic government's view. But the guy makes the mistake of saying that um, 
the uh, the uh, Rehabilitation Act goes too far, huh. and, and what and what they're hoping for is separate but equal. And I think he uses oh. the words separate but equal. Oh. And I don't know if you know this, John, but in a civil rights context, Kapow. should you or should you not use the phrase separate but equal all the time? I do not believe that separate but equal is the phrase you're looking for. It doesn't have a great historical pedigree. And so the protesters very cannily start speaking of uh, disability rights in the language of integration. Right. We're all for integration in 1977. Oh, what? You want there to be, what, separate buildings for the wheelchair people? Sure. And, uh, you know, so so they can really start to say this is, would not be the American solution it is a, to this it problem. It is a rhetorical uh, coup. Yes, it's a huge slip-up for whoever this uh, H-E-W staffer is. Uh, and as a result, after 24 days of occupation, depending on how you count it, it's, it's right around 24, on April 28th, 1977, uh, the Department of Health, Secretary Califano agrees to sign the Rehabilitation Act unchanged. So now the secretary was the where the buck stopped. This was not a thing where I have to imagine that in the Oval Office this conversation is happening. Was it really? Nick, the, it had already been signed right. by Nixon, but the implementation implementation here is the issue because you know so many of these federal mandates don't have teeth. Right. So it really comes down, and the you know the the court under the Nixon and Ford departments of health, education, and welfare, the courts had directed them. You know, this is what this is what the legislation should be. You know, stuff had been drafted, and they were just dragging their feet on. Yeah. They were oh. just sandbagging on stamping, signing it. it. Yeah, I see. Uh, is it actually a signing? Yeah, I, I guess cabinet heads probably sign sign an it, enforcement order directives to their uh, yeah. to their offices or whatever. Um, so the protest works. You know, 24 days of uh, of these guys in this uncomfortable building, washing each other's hairs, and the a, a real community does form. It's the beginning of a of a disability rights movement because these people have now all uh, taken care of each other. You know, they've they've been singing together at night. There's one particular elevator, which I guess is very popular for romantic interludes. Hello. Come on, John. It was a federal building in 1977 in San Francisco. Are you kidding me? You, you think there'd never been? <laughs> you think there'd never been anything going on in this uh, supply those, closet before? Those stairwells are full of people humping. Yeah, so many children had been conceived already. I'm sure in that building, but especially during the protest. You know, so and uh, so a real community had formed of people feeding each other, caring for each other, uh, and crucially, it really turned. You know, today we speak of disability rights normally. We think of them as kind of one of these groups of marginalized people that you, you think of when you index such things. You know, we don't discriminate by gender. We right. don't discriminate by race or religion. or And nowadays we always include, you know, and now you include uh, sexual identity. And now you include you always include disability when you think about that list. And that was just not true before. Um, disabled people were thought of as, it was a matter of charity. Yeah. It was a matter of rehabilitation. We should be nice to them and uh, and try to find them things to do. It was never thought of in constitutional terms, like what are their human rights? Sure, it's easy to it's easy to see any group of people as an aggregate, and and in that aggregate, you you know, rob them of their individuality. Right, and any any one person, I'm sure that all of all of the people um, involved on the 
on the the foot dragging government side, you know, they know someone with a disability that they think of as an individual, but when they look at a group of 150 people with disabilities, they just think of them as a kind of a, a, a type that needs sympathy, you know, the, where sympathy and care is enough or would be sufficient, right? And I and I've sad to say I noticed this in myself. You know, I, I noticed that kind of baseline discomfort around people with intellectual disabilities or, you know, somebody in a wheelchair, you know, you know, you have this immediate reaction like, oh, well, that's different from, sure. from my baseline idea of a person. But my, you know, my, my friend who's in a wheelchair, like, I, you know, I immediately, as soon as you're friends with someone, that goes away. Yeah. You know, Mindy's sister-in-law who had developmental disabilities, I never had any discomfort with her because, well, that's somebody I know. It really is a weird kind of one of the good ones <laughs> phenomenon where as soon as you know someone in the marginalized group, you're like, well, not... Not Jeff. We have a lot of uh, listeners and fans in our community that suffer from a variety of disabilities. Or I'm not even sure if "suffer" is the is the yeah, term do, of art. You anymore. don't say "suffer" anymore. You say "live with." Live with uh, a, a whole, you know, like the whole complement of of additional challenges. Because it's a really broad yeah. spectrum, as we've said. And we, and you know, and over the course of years of podcasting and and being in bands, you know the. Uh, my fans generally kind of identify, self-identify, you know, they, they let me know, um, because it's, I think it's like visibility is important. And so there is a tendency, I think now when people are having what, at least in my case, having fan interactions with people that have additional challenges, they let you know. And it's, it's really helped me. I think over time, first of all, understand the breadth of people that are, uh, consuming my media, but also, you know, yeah, it isn't, it's not just a question of modifying your language. It's a question of just re rethinking privilege for one. And, uh, but also, yeah, just that, that thing that you're describing where the otherness becomes threatening or discomforting. Yeah. What is it? And then, but just taking that away and realizing like, oh, there are people that are listening to our program right now that are, that are having a very different experience of life, but that doesn't make me uncomfortable. That's part of the, that's one of the great things about life, I guess. My good friend, Eric Hawk is in a wheelchair and is the lead guitar player of Portugal, the man. And if you watch Portugal, the man who are an enormous band, um, and the fact that their guitar player is in a wheelchair is just, it's just visually striking. It's, you wouldn't have, if, if yeah, you wouldn't have expected, of course, I don't think that you have to be, a, a, per, you know, mobile to play guitar, but, but apparently you did because you're so surprised when you see it. And he's such a rock star yeah. and an incredible guitar player, right? So, uh, but, but it still, it remains, and he, you know, he reports all the time hearing, you're just getting letters and comments from people that are like, are you okay? And that concludes the 504 sit-in. Entry 473.LK1413. Certificate number 30708 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and that you have not somehow transcended it and become pure light or 
pure spider silk. Social media is probably the only thing keeping them from that level of enlightenment. That's right. If you could put social media behind you, you may ascend directly to heaven. Do not, Pascal. Or some higher dimensional plane. Do you think it's heaven? At a certain point, what I mean, is heaven? I mean, it's true that social media is hell. So by, you're gonna by definition... What, you're going to know better than I do what heaven is. What is it? All the all the jello salad you can eat? I was just reading uh, Dante's Paradiso. Where I he, noticed that. Where he describes the nine levels of heaven. The funny thing is, it's heaven is very dull, in, in, according to Dante. <laughs> like, hell is full of... Uh, heaven is a place on earth, and hell is for children. Hell is full of... Hell and purgatory are full of local color. Yeah. Uh, but heaven is not exactly a land of contrast. He goes up to a different... Every time he goes to a different level, he's like, yes, it's still bright and glorious here, uh... <laughs> Uh, they're still singing, and uh, what a drag! This level is for people who were good. Uh huh. Like even the, even the different kinds of good people are just good people. Basically. Oh, so even as a good person, you can aspire to even there's more there's competition in heaven. The bottom two levels of party. So I'm I'm unusually conversant in this right now. The bottom two levels of party. So are for people who seem like they're a little bit on the bubble. Uh-huh. The first level, the level of the moon, is for people who are inconstant in their vows. And really, it seems very hard. It seems like they were like nuns that got ravished by the Turks or something. Yeah. So really, I mean, just that doesn't seem like it's her fault. Still, she's a she was a nun the whole time. She was yeah, but there seems to be some slut shaming going on on the first level. Uh, well, I mean, is it is it like masturbating? Will that get you? Will are you are you, you priced you, out of heaven at that you, point? Did you take a vow not to masturbate? I mean, I, I know Henry Rollins probably did, but oh, I'm sure. He did. <laughs> uh, and then the second level is for people who were. Um, I mean, all these people are saved, of course, but the second level is people who are too ambitious. Yeah. So, well, ambitious to get higher up in, in heaven. Well, sure. But but they're not. Oh, it's a paradox. Dante asks, and he's told, no, no, no. Uh, they're, they, they still are in perfect accord with the mind of God, and so they have perfect bliss, even though they're on the level of the moon or, uh-huh. or uh, Mercury. Okay. All right. Uh, the ambitious people get Mercury. They get the smallest planet in a bit of, of divine irony. Uh-huh. But there's just, like, all he does is just argue theology. Every level, he's like, well, hey, if Adam had a belly button, or like, hey, if there's nine types of angels, like, and it's all this kind of stuff. Right. What a drag. So he really does, I mean, I'm sure his point was not that hell and purgatory are better, but to at least the modern reader, it's hard to come away recommending Paradiso to the to the Is the top level of hell one where it's not too bad? Yeah, the top level of hell is all the good pagans, all the people who oh. weren't baptized, but it's like Homer and uh, and right. Virgil and Aristotle are all chilling. That seems like where you want to be. In like a forested glen or like a castle with a meadow inside. What the? Why would you not want that? That seems like heaven. Well, you're, you're still separate from God, John. I'm fine with that if I can be in a castle with Homer. <laughs> <laughs> like, those are your two options. <laughs> the hand of God or you can be in a castle with Homer. Uh, if you would like more of this top quality content, follow at Ken Jennings on Twitter. Uh, You're where really going to endorse my Twitter? Where he will just say whatever he wants and get 1,000 faves. John is so angry that my tweets are 10 times as good as his, but get Ugh. 12 times as many followers. Ugh. He hates the injustice of that. It's really bad. If you're listening to this program, unfollow Ken and follow me at John Roderick. And let's try to get a little bit more of uh, a little bit more parody there. People are just going to create a burner account to refollow me. They can't do without my my hilarious uh, uh, interpolations. You can go uh, check out my Instagram, where occasionally I post a, uh, a a witty picture. Less so now that you can't thrift. 
Yeah, that's the problem. I can't go anywhere. So what am I taking pictures of? Blackberry bushes? The the blackberry bushes of my neighborhood? I could do I could do a whole a whole theme. Uh, you can email us together at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, and if you if you put any praise for Ken in the top line, he won't read any further down into the email. So praise me early, alienate him, and then put his praise later on. Don't you think I'm likely to stop reading? If oh, it's, uh... right. Well, how do I get you to tell me the praise, uh, to share my praise with I me? will always send you praise. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Uh, you can go to the Futurelings page on Facebook. That's a place uh, that you could praise us. Or criticize us, I guess, if that's what you're into. We have been criticized on that page before. I don't recommend it. You can send us things, wonderful things, or questionable things. We got our first poster tube in the mail. We did, and it's full of pretty sexy material. Our friend Steven is a photographer in L.A., and he sent us... Toasty Cakes. Toasty Cakes. You may know him on social media. And he sent us... uh, what a, a lovely Chateau Marmont uh, photo he took, and, which I will pr- I will print and or, a typewritten uh, frame. and a typewritten letter on. This is kind of your trademark, Chateau Marmont stationery. Yeah, I use that for my notes. He says he has a box full of Walter Mondale campaign pins, but he didn't send those. Well, I want those, but he also sent us a picture of uh, like a, a naked girl. Some of the some of the uh, sexy models he photographs. Yeah, but they're beautiful prints. They're like on photographic quality paper. I'm definitely going to use at least one of those. He's not some sleazy an guy. He's an art photographer. Uh, of the beautiful female form. Yeah. And hotel signage, apparently. I feel like one of those signs may go in, in like, the hall of my house, and one of them may go in one of the back rooms. Oh, the the uh, the sanctum, the inner sanctum? The inner sanctum. Do you have... Um, I'm sorry you took that Henry Rollins vow, then. Yeah. Do you have... Uh, he sent us two $2 bills. Oh. Do, do you want wh- one of these? What was the... Of course I do. What was the significance of the $2 bill? Did he have... Did he... In his long letter, did he explain? It's in the postscript. I wrote this in early December, but I'm finally wrapping it up in March. I see that cash makes J.R. giddy, so here are a couple of $2 bills. May may they bring you both good luck in these strange times. Nice. That is nice. I think I was just talking about $2 bills with my daughter, and she will be thrilled that one has appeared in her life. My great-grandma gave me one when I was a kid, and I always carried it around as a lucky piece. There it is. Although I think the thing about $2 bills, it's like how you always... um, Dollar coins you'll accidentally think are a quarter. Like that's yeah. why people hate Susan B. Anthony. Right. I mean, I'm sure she got women the right to vote, but, but she come also, on. she loses you seventy five cents every time you're careless at a vending machine. Well, those Sacagawea dollars too, they just I, I think we should have dollar coins, right? Like yes. do you remember oh you do remember. Do you remember the one hundred peseta coin? From Spain? Yes. Yeah, it's why? Well, it was thick. Yes, I like the thickness of it. It was small but thick. It was only probably a, the size of a nickel, but it was like... It was thick with two Cs. It was thick and it had writing on the edge. Yeah. And that coin was so sexy, I wanted I wanted American dollars to be like that because 100 pesetas was... It just felt like real money. And I had a little leather pouch that I carried all my... Spanish money in the Spain. You're on like a D and D campaign. Spain had the best money, except for the Netherlands. The Netherlands had the most beautiful money, and now it's all it's gone. all swept away. It's all gone, like tears and rain, swept away by identical. But at least the euro has dollar coins, which is more than we can yeah, manage but in this country. They're like whatever. But the thing I was saying about two dollar bills is if you accidentally, it looks like a one. Yeah. So you accidentally will give it away as change and that's how i kept losing my great grandma's lucky charm well ken lost his great grandma's lucky charm and we keep giving away our money so please uh if you can 
replenish our, our stores at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Both of us have, uh, we have $4 here. It'll get us, through, it'll get us through That's the right. night, but, uh, the, the podcast is really kept viable now by our, by Desiree and other like-minded generous donors. We are lucky enough during this time of economic shutdown to have a job that allows us to continue to, uh, we're essential. We're to do ass- our work. We're essential workforce. We were we were already completely sequestered before, and so this has not changed uh, changed our bunker that much. But if you can uh, support our show at Patreon.com/slash/OmnibusProject, and that is it. I think it is. Yeah. Did you say that you don't care about the subreddit? You don't care. Oh about yeah. The- no. Go to the Reddit and the Discord uh, if you are so inclined. Did you say the mailbox? You did. Uh, yeah, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Send us your $2 bills and Mondale pins. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that catastrophe will be averted permanently, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, whatever form he takes... Uh, in, in, Whichever in, le- level of heaven or hell you're on. At the end of Dante's Paradiso, <laughs> he appears as three interlocking rings. Huh. Yeah, he looks like an 80s computer graphics test. He, <laughs> he's the god of Tron. Those three interlocking rings that kind of uh, cycle over one another, you know, the like uh, yes. Italian marriage ring or yes. whatever that it's is? It's like an MC Escher thing where because it's the miracle of three in one. Uh, so yeah. even though the rings are different colors, they're also somehow occupying the same space. But if the three-ringed god of uh, 14th century Italy allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. <laughs>